Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. It's always an honor to preach God's Word, and I pray that things we do in this whole entire world. Matthew chapter 16. Have you guys ever heard the saying, knock on wood? Oh, see people knock on wood sometimes? The reason they do it is because they believe that when they do, they bring themselves good luck or kind of ward off the bad luck. There's an origin to this practice, and after you hear in both origins, if you, don't want, if you want to stop, that's totally up to you. The first one comes from pagan cults, the Celts, right? What they believed is that in the trees, they believed that spirits and their gods were in the trees, so whenever they needed you know, to summon them for their protection or so forth and so on, they would knock on the tree, knock on the wood. Uh, the other more recent origin of this saying comes from a game called, in the 19th century, Tiggy Touchwood. Okay? Tiggy Touchwood was kind of like a form of tag. And the way that you were immune to not being it or being safe was that you had to touch a wooden door or some tree, and that's how it was played. Now, guys, regardless of the origin, we know there's no such thing as luck. That our Lord has sovereignly ordained everything in our lives. Yes, this also includes trials as well. And today, we're going to see how Peter um, tried to knock on wood, quote-unquote, to prevent Jesus from suffering and dying. But we will see also Jesus' wonderful response. Let's uh, begin reading in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. Everyone's there? The word, the word of God says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Powerful words from our Lord to Peter giving what we read last week, right? The words that Jesus called Peter, that the confession that Peter made, that was the rock that Christ would build his church upon, right? The rock, the confession that Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the son of the living God. And he actually blessed Peter and told him, man, Peter, good for you because this did not come from you. It came from God himself. He revealed this to you. And he gives the Peters the keys of kingdom of the kingdom of heaven and authority to how to deal with sin in the church to Peter. You would think that this is a big ordeal, right? This is a big moment in Peter's life. And a matter of days, maybe hours later, <laughs> Jesus is telling Satan, get away from me. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to see how this conversation of Jesus and his disciples has three parts. The first part we're going to talk about is Jesus foretelling 
his disciples of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. The second part of this conversation that we're going to discuss tonight is Peter's response to Jesus' foretelling in verse 22. And the last part that we're going to talk about of this conversation is Jesus' rebuke towards Peter in verse 23. And the theme that I want you guys to have in mind as we move along and we study God's word and we read this and we go back to it is this. As believers, we should strive to set our minds on God's interests, even if that means difficult times. I'll say it again. As believers, we should strive to set our minds on God's interests, even if that means difficult trials. So let's begin unwrapping this conversation. First part, the foretelling of his suffering, death, and resurrection. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. We begin verse 21 with from that time. From that time is particular, and I don't want you guys to skip over it. It was actually the second time that Matthew says these words. The first time we find it in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why is this important? Many commentators consider chapter 4 in Matthew and what we're going to study right now, major turning points in Jesus' ministry. In chapter 4 is when he began his ministry to the public from that time. And here, from that time, he starts to begin his ministry to his disciples, a personal ministry to his disciples. So when he says, from that time, what did that, what happened from there? Why, why is this a turning point? He began to what? To show his disciples. Now, the Greek word for show here means to prove. It's the only time in the New Testament that it is used with the meaning to prove something. So what did Jesus need to prove to them that they didn't know already? So basically, he now begins to show them. Basically saying, I got to prove to you that I am the Messiah. And part of proving to you that I am the Messiah, these things have to happen. I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to suffer. I got to be killed. And I got to resurrect on the third day. Why does he do this? Up until this point, he has kind of mentioned about his death. He hasn't really gotten into details with his disciples yet. He alludes to his death where? Matthew 9, chapter 15. Sorry, chapter 9, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Another reference that Jesus alludes to his death is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Another time that he alludes to his death with the, the, his, uh, his crowds and his disciples is Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this is the first time that Jesus actually predicts his death clearly to his disciples. 
Therefore, turning point. Therefore, it takes a, a more personal approach to his disciples to let them know what are the things that are coming now. What is next in, this, in, in our ministry and what Jesus is doing? What's the first thing he tells them? Okay. I got to show them, verse 16. Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Where, what is in Jerusalem when it comes to, I guess, sacrifices? What is in Jerusalem? Yeah. The temple, yes. And what happens in the temple? Sacrifices. You know, the main sacrifices happen in the temple, right? So Jesus has to go to Jerusalem because guess what? What was he going to do? His own sin. He was, he was the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice for all of us. Then he, t- he tells them, not only am I going to go to Jerusalem, but I'm going to suffer many things. The Greek here means to experience harm or emotional pain. Both Jesus experienced. And then he says many things. Is he going to suffer one thing? He's going to suffer many things. A great amount or extent. Now, what type of sufferings did Jesus live through? I'm going to tell you a couple within Matthew's account, and we'll get there in a couple of years, from chapters 26 and 27. And there's a purpose why I want to show you what he is going to suffer. And there's a point to this. So, he was wrongly accused. He was innocent. He was an innocent man. When they came to him, he goes, hey, it's weird that you're getting me in the dark. I was in the public. I was in the plaza. I was, in, I was there. Why didn't you do it then? He was spat on, beaten with fists, slapped in the face, mocked. He was denied by his followers. Remember Peter? A criminal was favored over him. Pilate gave the opportunity to release either Jesus or Barabbas. And who did he release? Who did the, the people want to be released? Barabbas. A criminal. Right? He was scourged by Roman soldiers. A crown of thorns was forced upon him. Was mocked and spat on again. Was nailed to a cross. Publicly humiliated. Basically naked on that cross. Continued to be mocked while he's on the cross was forsaken by God, our God-man was killed by sinful humans. These are the things that he suffered. And it's important that you remember these things that he suffered. Who did he suffer under these things? Who did he suffer these things under? Well, if you continue reading 21, many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. The elders were primarily the leaders of various tribes, Scattered through Israel, chief priests were largely Sadducees, and scribes were largely Pharisees. So altogether, they made up something called the Jewish Sanhedrin. Can anybody tell me what the Jewish Sanhedrin was? Have an idea of what it might have been, the Jewish Sanhedrin? Fox? Excellent, sir, yes. The court kind of court system, all right, and that is where he was. These are the people who allowed this and sentenced this to happen. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, 
suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes. And what is he going to do now? What is he, need to, what is he telling his disciples that's going to happen to him? He's going to be what? Anybody? It's right there. It's in the Bible. Yes, he's going to be killed. My boy. He's going to be killed. Now, the Greek word for killed here is not of a legal execution where, well, we found him guilty, then his sentence is, is death. No, the Greek word for killed here is murder. Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. He was murdered. See, the Jewish Sanhedrin would not stop until Jesus and his message was stopped. And we've talked and discussed about this. Why? Why was Jesus such a threat to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, to the scribes? Because the message that he brought, the message that you cannot save yourself. You will never be good enough to save yourself. You guys are all wicked. You need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. Pharisees didn't like it. It was easy for them to what? To do all these things, to make up all these laws, to show everyone how the religious they were. But they didn't want to make him their Lord. Because if Jesus was Lord, they would have to give up their authority, their life, their control. Personally and politically. They weren't ready to do that. Last part. And be raised up on the third day. Basically resurrected after his death on the third day. Now, how many of you sometimes read over that and go straight to Peter's reaction? And you would think, why did Peter react that way? Jesus said that, yeah, he was going to suffer many things. Yeah, he was going to die. But he was also going to what? Come back from the dead. Why? It seems to me like Peter just skipped over that, right? The disciples that he, he, when Jesus said, I'm going to suffer many things and be killed. Oh, what do you mean, Lord? No, you can't be, you can't die. Who's going to teach us? Who's our teacher? That could have been through Peter's mind and the disciples' mind, right? Why else would they doubt that Jesus would raise from the dead? Logically. Because at this point, who is raising people from the dead? Jesus is. Remember the daughter uh, of Gaius, right? He was, he raised her from the dead. He, they've seen him do it. It's not like they haven't. But if he's dead, what are they thinking? Well, who's going to resurrect him if he's dead? Could be, right? What's another reason why the reaction that Peter had? But may it never be, Lord. What if? What if their view of the Messiah wasn't the view that they needed to have? Remember that they were expecting a Savior from what? Thank you. Yeah, a Savior, a savior from Rome, from their Roman oppression. They were tired of living under all these kingdoms. They thought... You can't die. You're the Messiah. I said it. You're Christ, the son of the living God. You're going to reign, and we're going to probably reign with you, and you're going to give us some, some sort of, you know, political spot somewhere in your kingdom. Think about it. It's very easy to judge Peter, right? 
No, I'll never do that. I've ne- I'll never do that. But we're Peter every day, and we're going to see why. I want to take a moment here and I pause, and I want to make these truths very, very clear to all of you. The reason why Jesus suffered the way he did was to pay the price for our sins. Why does somebody have to pay the price for our sins? Well, God is the creator of the world. He created you. He created me. He created everyone. Because he created us, he makes the rules. He told us, obey my commandments, and we'll have great communion together. And what did man do? Okay, and went the other way. He sinned against the holy God. And once that happened, we are all separated from God. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin, the price of sin is death. Just one sin that you commit in your life, that's it. You are apart from God. He wants nothing to do with you. Before you say, I'm a good person, I never sinned. How many of you had a discussion with your brother or sister today? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you got angry? Oh, but I, I never killed anybody. Well, Jesus said that if you get angry at your brother, it's like killing. Oh, but I don't steal. Oh, but I don't do these big sins. Well, you, you sin. And sin is sin for God. There is none righteous, not even one. Do you see the bad news here? Do you see that apart from God, we're destined to hell? But that verse that says the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible is clear. And says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead, that he's the son of God, and we repent from our sins, he is faithful and able and willing to forgive us. Don't leave today without knowing and doing and confessing that about God in your life. And if you have any questions, please talk to your small group leads about it. We would love to have that conversation. Talk to me about it. I would love to have that conversation with you. Even better, talk to your parents about it. They would love to have that conversation with you. But this is why all this suffering occurred. All the trial that Jesus had to go through, the blessing of Jesus trusting in his Father towards his death gave us salvation. Now let's go back and think for a second about the kindness of Jesus to prepare his disciples for what was coming. Think about it. He could have not said anything to them. He could have continued letting them think what type of Messiah was in their mind. He could continue to heal the sick and, 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 and feed the, the multitudes and calm the storms and, and then die and resurrect. And, but he prepared them for what was coming. He took time and he said, hey, this is what's going to happen. These are the trials that you're going to go through. You know that God does the same with us? God does the same with us. And we react the same way that Peter did and the disciples did. He prepares us for life. Jesus tells us how great our lives are going to be when we come to Christ. We won't have any problems. We won't have any sickness. We will never be poor. We're going to have health, wealth, and prosperity because that's in the Bible, and I believe it. Amen. Is that true? Turn to Matthew chapter 10. We were there a couple of weeks ago. Verse 16. 
Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Go to verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who lives, who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. <laughs> Welcome to Christianity. Just like Jesus was preparing his disciples of the bad things that were going to come. God prepares the same way. He prepares our hearts. He tells us, hey, this is not going to be an easy life to live. But don't worry about it. I'm in control. God is in control. And we're going to talk about God's sovereignty later on. And how having God as a sovereign God is the best thing that any of us could ask for. That none of it is by accident. That everything is purposeful. Everything that happens to our lives, to the very T, to the very hair that falls on your head, is controlled. And God is in control of that. What a great thing that is. That our perfect, holy, wonderful, good God is in control of everything. The good and the bad. Let's go back to why Peter, knowing that Jesus just stated that he would die but also resurrect, take Jesus to his side and say, hey, may this never be. Maybe he didn't understand that the Messiah he had in mind to be the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Let's move on to the second part of the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. We're going to look at Peter's response in verse 22. So Matthew 16, verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. See, <laughs> I'm thinking Peter's judgment, right? And like he has the understanding of let me set him aside. Let's not do it in front of his disciples, right? You would think, okay, he's going to set him aside. He's going to talk to him. But you use your judgment for that, but then you're rebuking the man you just said, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. To rebuke here in the Greek means to admonish or warn forcefully as expressing strong disapproval. Come on, Jesus. You know, I know more than you. You can't, you can't let this happen. This, is, this, is, this can't be happened. This can't happen. He told him, God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. This phrase, God forbid it here, means kind of God is with us. He will never allow that. 
don't worry, may grace be upon you, or basically kind of knocking on wood. Hey, don't worry about it. Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> now, would you consider his intentions wrong? Humanly, would you consider his intentions wrong? He, he does call them Lord. He's not like, are you kidding me? What are you talking about? He's like, God forbid it, Lord. Like, I, I can see he's like, I want to tell you what I'm feeling, but you're still God. But let me tell you my opinion here. He loved Jesus. That was his, his, his teacher for three years. Peter left everything to follow him. We know for sure Peter was married. He left a lot of things to follow Jesus. For all of a sudden, for him to say, yeah, I'm going to die. This is why it's dangerous to not have a sound theological understanding of God's sovereignty. Have you ever heard people tell each other, the best is yet to come? Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, the best is yet to come. You know how dangerous that phrase is? And it's, and it's preached by the pulpit. You know how dangerous that is? Think about it this way. They say the best is yet to come because in their mind, they're thinking, don't worry about it. Things are going to work out and everything is going to happen the way you want it to turn out. The best is yet to come. And that's a total lie. What if the best never comes? What if you have a sickness that never goes away? Is it God does not love you enough? You don't have enough faith? No. The Lord sovereignly chose certain individuals, certain trials, certain tribulations for all of us. And he's still God, and he's still in control. If you mean by the best is yet to come, meaning that, hey, regardless of the good or the bad that you're going through, the Lord is going to sanctify you, and he's going to mature you, and he's going to grow you. And everything works together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, good and bad, then yeah. The best is yet to come because, of course, the more we live our Christian life, the more we mature, the more we become like Christ, yes. But when you go to somebody who is going through a tough time, know what you say and how you approach it. Now, people might say, it's just not fair. Man, it's not fair that I'm going through this. It's not fair. Why, am I, why do I have to go through this? Why do my family member ha is a sick one? Why did my family member was the one that died? Why, do I can't, why don't I have a job? Why don't I get accepted to this school? Why are my parents getting a divorce? Why was I abused? Why was I hit? Why was I bullied? It's not fair. Life is not fair. You know the only one who can actually say that it wasn't fair? Is Jesus Christ. We're in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only death, death on a cross, which is the most shameful death, was one of the most painful deaths at the time. He endured. Was it fair for him? No. 
see what happens to us, especially our sinful actions and our sinful consequences. Yeah, that's totally us. We deserve that. How many of you think you would have never done what Peter did? I'm not going to say you raise your hand. I'm just a rhetorical question. Sometimes we think, yeah, that, that Peter, can't believe that guy. What a guy. Every time I, I try to read these and I try to, like, when I think that in my mind, it's like, I can't have done that. It's because I, I totally would do it. I totally would. And, 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 I'll, and I'll show you, we all do it all the time. And you don't even realize it. See, every time you worry and have anxiety through any trial that you're going through in life, you're basically doing that. You're basically telling God, may it never be. Praying away your circumstance. Praying away your trials. Even though the Lord has ordained it, as hard as it might sound to you, if God put his own son through the biggest trial of, every, of anyone, who are we not to experience the trials that he has for us? Think about it in that way. We pray to God that he change his will because we just don't like what we're going through at the moment. See, they had the promise, just like we had the promise. Peter had the promise, yes, Jesus would die, but he's going to resurrect. He just told him that, I'm going to die, suffer, but resurrect. What does God tell us about our trials? He doesn't promise that we're not going to have anybody. What does he do promise? He does promise what through the trials? That he's going to give us what? Somebody said it. Say it out loud. Abby. Peace. It's right there for us. It's right there. His promise to us, peace during our trials. The fact that he's with us during our trials, that we're not abandoned, that he's with us, we're not alone in this, should give us that hope and security. But just like Peter, we oversee it. You, you skip that part. You oversee and you just focus so much on your problem and your trial and not all the promises that God has given you that he will be with you and the peace that he can give you during that trial. To prove this point, Let's go to the final point of the conversation. Jesus is rebuked. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus called Peter Satan. In the, in the previous section that we just read, I want to read it. Let's read it together. So, in, right there in chapter 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philipp and Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, meaning the confession, Peter's confession, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
Then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. These are words, these are powerful words that Jesus Christ is telling Peter. In a couple of verses, maybe days, maybe hours, get behind me, Satan. Because he was what? A stumbling block. The Greek here for stumbling block means any cause that results in or is intended for a person sinning, whether by preventing righteous action or by promoting sinful behavior. See, God takes stumbling blocks seriously. As believers, we should never, ever be stumbling blocks for fellow believers. I need three volunteers who know the verse for this month. George, Nico, and Silas, come on, guys. By the way, the verse is connected to this, so I'm just like, just. what is the verse for this month? And what does it say? Thank you very much. Thank you. Go ahead. What does this verse have to do with stumbling blocks? For you were called to freedom, brethren. Freedom, freedom. Okay, I have freedom. For what? To do whatever I want? No, do not be a stumbling block. Use your freedom that you have to love on your neighbors and not make them sin. Where does the context? Well, we know that issues of conscience. Pastor Dusty is great at teaching about this. Where, for example, in, Corinth, in the church in Corinthians, there were those Gentiles that were just converted and they were eating that steak and they were okay with eating the steak. And the Jews were like, what are you doing? That was, you know, that was offered to idols. They're like, idols? We, have, we worship the living God. We, we're, we're, we're good here. And the, and the Jewish Christians were like, no, I, I don't. So basically what Paul was telling them, hey, Gentile, when you invite one of those Jewish Christians to your home, become a vegetarian. Don't be a stumbling block for him. Don't make him sin. Enticing him, man, you sure you don't want this steak? Ooh, boy, it's good, picanha. Don't do that. Don't serve as a stumbling block to have, to have them sin against their own conscience or sin at all. That is the verse that we learned this month. That freedom that we have is for unity amongst us. To choose, yes, with, to choose freedom. And that freedom to choose to love our neighbors more than ourselves. Now, when Jesus is telling Peter that he is not putting his interest in God, but in man, he's implying that this is God's will for it to happen. He's like, hold on a second, Peter, you don't understand what's going on here. This needs to happen. But Lord, you're going to die. He's like, exactly. It needs to happen. You know, another part where, where Jesus says this in John chapter 18, verse 11. Here, they're, they're coming for him to arrest him. And again, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath 
the cup which the Father has given me, shall not I drink of it? He's telling him, Peter, you don't, you don't get it. This is the will of God. You mean the will of God is for you to die and be crucified and be shamed? Yes. Yes, exactly. That's what it is. Now, it doesn't mean we can't pray away a circumstance, right? It doesn't mean that we can't come to our Father boldly before the throne, calling Him Abba Father, because He's also our Father, and He loves us. But let's do it the way Jesus did it. Everyone turn to Luke chapter 22. Verse 39. The Word of God says, And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus was in a tough situation. And this is the humanity of our God-man Jesus, 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And you see his humanity here, praying to God, hey, if it's your will, please take it away, but let not my will be done, but yours. So yes, of course we want to pray for circumstances and for sicknesses that are with us to go away and for the Lord to heal us and for the Lord to do all these things. And there's nothing wrong with praying that. And I, and I encourage you to pray for that. Of course we do. But more importantly, we pray that God's will be done. That God's will be done. You might be thinking, well, it's easier said than done, Alejandro, right? And you're probably right, especially when you're not going through a trial. When you're not going through a trial, everything is nice, and your life is going a certain way, and you look at other people's lives, and then you have this trial, and it's like, yeah, it's easy for you to say because you're not going through anything. All of us experience trials at one point or another, and you will experience trials at one point or another. That is a Christian life, trials. There's moment of peace and joy. There's moment of sorrow and hurt and pain. But you know what? It's, it's sad that in our humanity, this is what gets us close to the Father. I don't know if any of you have experienced a trial before to the point where, you know what? Waking up at 5 or 6 in the morning is not a big deal because you know you need to. You know you need to open that word and meditate on that word and pray and be with God because that's the only peace that you have in the entire day. It's easy when you're in trial. But how quickly do we forget when that trial goes away? Waking up at five is like, well, I don't know. That's, 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 that's who we are sometimes. We should get to the point where we should wake up and come to God with that joy always, with trial or no trial. And I love how Brandon said it one day. We should be preparing ourselves when there's moments of peace for the next trial to come. So guess what? We can handle it with more grace and, and we can be in the right mindset. Because it's coming. It's just a matter of time. Do you know who knows the best plan for your life? 
Do you know who that is? God. He is good, loving, in control of all your circumstances, including, yes, the very one you're living today. If you're able to trust in him and his word, the trial will still be hard, but it will be easier to live through knowing that he is on your side and you're not alone. Commentator MacArthur writes, when believers focus on their present pain or potential distress rather than on the Lord who has allowed that pain, they are easy prey for Satan's traps and can even become his traps or ensnaring others. James, therefore, says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under a trial. He goes on to say, For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Guess what, guys? Jesus trusted the plan that the Father had for him. And you know what? The consequences of Jesus trusting that plan is yours and your and my salvation. He needed to go to Jerusalem. He needed to suffer many things. He needed to die, and he needed to resurrect. And that was the, the Father's plan for Jesus' life. And Jesus was obedient, obedient to the cross. He embraced the cross. He embraced God's will. He embraced it. And guess what we have today? Salvation. What a wonderful thing that we have. What a wonderful thing that Jesus was obedient to the Father's plan. And if we are to be like Jesus, we are to be obedient to whatever plan the Lord has for us today. I want to end with a couple of questions. And these are the questions that you're going to answer with your small group. Number one, do you think before you talk? Do you think before you talk? Examine your hearts. Number two, do you set your minds to the Father's interests or to yours? Do you set your hearts and minds to the Father's interests or to yours? And finally, do you trust in God even when things do not go your way? Can you truly say that you trust in God when things don't go your way? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this encouragement, God, of obeying you, Lord, of trusting in your plans, of putting our minds in your interest, God, knowing that you are in control of our lives. You are in control of everything that we live through because you are a good, loving God. Let us trust in you. Forgive us, Father, for our anxiety. Forgive us, Father, for our not wanting to do your will. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that we know better for ourselves than you, O oh God. Help us be like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To want to do your will, to embrace your will, no matter what comes, my God. Thank you for your word, Holy Spirit. Convict us, transform us, sanctify us. And thank you for the work that you do in our lives through your word. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen.